So as I said, one of the things that we all love to do is to open up the word of God. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, chapters one, uh, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. Now, the guys and I have had it on the schedule for a couple of months now that I'd be preaching on this Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, the last Sunday of the year. And I just finished an exposition of the short letter to Philemon. And as I've been thinking about what to preach today, I kept on coming back to this passage. And I suspect the reason is that as I've looked back over the last year at the counseling and the writing and the preaching I've done, and even the casual interactions I've had, I'd be hard-pressed to think of a verse that I've cited more often than 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. On a practical level, I believe that a solid understanding of this verse and this passage that we're going over today will be of immense benefit to any Christian in his or her everyday life. Because it strikes right at the center of our interactions with other people, as well as our consideration of even our own motives and hearts. And at the end of the day, as Christians, we can ultimately have complete confidence in Christ, in his word, even if we might potentially be dealing with, say, fickle people, or even more, our own far more fickle and deceitful hearts. Now, whenever we consider a passage of scripture, it's important to think about the context of that passage. So here, before we read our passage at the start of chapter 4, Let's think about what Paul just finished telling us in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of 1 Corinthians. Paul has basically said, hey, cut out the division and the factiousness. factiousness. Stop with the I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I am of Cephas or Peter. Instead, remember the gospel. Remember unity. Remember that the wisdom of this world is actually foolishness. And what we really want is God's wisdom of the word. Don't divide into factions because Paul and Apollos and Peter are all co-workers. All of them are doing God's glory, are, are working for God's glory and God's kingdom. They might do things differently. They might do some things together and some things apart. They might even disagree from time to time. But at the end of the day, Christians who are truly ministering for God will receive heavenly rewards represented by gold and silver and precious stones, while all of the other actions that are motivated by something other than God, such as selfish motives or pride, all of those actions will burn up like wood or hay or straw without any heavenly rewards. And ultimately, that's for the Lord to judge and not us. And so don't deceive yourself by thinking you're wise. Don't boast in other men and foster division. Instead, remember Christ and keep him central. So that's the context in the lead up to our passage in 1 Corinthians 4 verses 1 through 5. Let's turn there and read it together. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time 
but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. The title of this sermon is The Confident Christian. And we're going to draw out four main points from this passage. Our first point will be the confidence of a lowly slave. Our second point will be the confidence of a trustworthy steward. Our third point will be the confidence of a clear conscience. And our fourth point will be the confidence of a final judgment. So let's look at our first point, the confidence of a lowly slave in the first half of verse 1. After three chapters of talking about avoiding divisions and factions and instead keeping our minds fixed on things above, like heavenly rewards in the gospel, for example, Paul brings it back to how he wants the Corinthians to view people like himself. Let a man regard us in this manner. Now, this is reinforced by the fact that we can simply read ahead to verse 6 after our passage where Paul plainly tells us what he's doing in our passage this morning. Verse 6 says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Paul is saying, look, don't divide into factions. Don't get all wrapped up in what other people are doing or thinking. Your leaders aren't doing that, so you're not getting it from them. The word of God doesn't say to do that, so you're not getting it from there either. Instead, don't exceed what is written in the word. Don't add a bunch of man-made rules and loyalties toward men into the mix. And then verse 6 explicitly says, you go ahead and apply this passage to Paul and Apollos. And if they lead by example, as I believe they have been doing clearly, and if the congregation remembers the word of God, then everyone can avoid arrogance and pride, which is such a key sin associated with division and factionalism and strife. And how does Paul tell us to do this in the first part of verse 1? Right after he says, let a man regard us in this manner, or look at us this way, he gets to the key concept in point one, and it's the antidote to pride, which is humility as servants of Christ. Now, the word for, the, the word for servant here in the Greek is huperates, which is, and it is such a rich word as you study it, far richer than servant in the English language, so much so that I feel compelled to go into it with you. The connotation of this word is that of a third level under rower, a lower deck galley slave. Pastor John loves the word picture of this Greek term. So you may have heard this before, but it's really intended to convey. This Greek word is intended to convey the lowest and most menial type of slave. One writer describes it as follows. It is difficult to imagine conditions worse than those on board. A shackle kept him tied to his seat where he ate, slept, and went to the bathroom. He was barefoot and his head was shaved to prevent the accumulation of lice and to make identifying him easier in case he escaped. Nothing more lay ahead for a slave than the sea battles with the boats and the very real option of ending up at the bottom of the Mediterranean trapped in their rocking prison. It's sometimes said that you could recognize a galley by the smell that preceded it. That's how horrific life was for any galley slave. 
But for the under rower, the huperites, for the third level galley slave at the bottom, life was especially grim. These slaves would tend to have the most brutal conditions. They would tend to bear the heaviest loads. And they would tend to be the first to drown in the event of damage to the ship or other problems. It's possible that an overseer might have mercy on the higher-level galley slaves by quickly unchaining them before abandoning ship himself. But an overseer wouldn't typically stick around to help the lowest-level galley slaves because they'd already be making for the upper levels and upper decks themselves to save themselves at the first sign of trouble. It was utterly miserable. But that's exactly how Paul describes leaders like himself and Apollos. And this is right in line with how Jesus himself describes the role of a spiritual leader in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. I'm going to read that passage to you. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, in well-taught Bible churches, sweet congregations tend to esteem and honor their leaders because that's what they're called to do in places like Hebrews 13 and 1 Thessalonians 5.12 and 1 Timothy 5.17. Certainly we, Harry and Nathan and Mark and I, feel that way. You guys have loved us so well and so much. So we tend to see that in well-taught Bible churches. But the flip side of that is the leaders cannot let that go to their heads. They cannot allow themselves to get puffed up or lord it over the flock. They need to remember, we need to remember, I need to remember that every Christian leader is just a third-level under rower for Christ. And even though the reference here is to leaders like Paul and Apollos, all throughout the New Testament, we have over a hundred references to all ordinary Christians being referred to as slaves of Christ. Pastor John even wrote a book called Slave on this very topic on how English language Bibles have tended to use the word servant or bondservant when really the better translation is slave. So that sounds pretty lowly for all of us, right? Our first point is the confidence of a lowly slave, which begs the question, how does that understanding somehow give us confidence? Well, the answer is that when you truly see yourself as a slave of God, as the lowest of the low on a human level, as someone with no rights or expectations at all, then you are set free to do whatever you need to do for the sake of the master. If we are truly slaves of Christ, then it doesn't matter if we are shackled to an oar, even living in our own waste and refuse, perhaps being screamed at and whipped by the overseer, at constant risk of drowning and disease. Because the reality is, even in that situation, if we are in Christ, then we are right where God has ordained us to be, considering our trials to be joy, as it says in James chapter 1, verse 2, and serving the Lord even as we labor in chains, as Paul did so often in his ministry. 
You know, th- th- this is such a foreign concept to us in our lavish American luxury with our rights and our demands and our first world problems, right? But I promise you that people in Paul's day would have gotten it. They would have been familiar with this image of the third level under rower. So let's try to put ourselves in their shoes, even if just for a little bit. There's a confidence that comes along with knowing this world is the worst it's ever going to be for us as believers. That all of the persecution we might suffer from unbelievers is but a momentary light affliction. And that we neither expect nor deserve anything more. And maybe they'll even kill our bodies, but they cannot kill our souls. And those souls are predestined to an eternity in heaven in the presence of our precious and beloved Savior. There's a confidence that comes along with knowing that even when we do something good, our attitude is the exact same lowly humility. We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done, as it says in Luke chapter 17, verse 10. Now, of course, the reality for all of us today is that really all of us have it far better than the third level under rower of Paul's day. So let's take that blessing and rejoice and give thanks to God for that, for his grace and mercy, and not let it lull us into a sense of complacency or laziness. So often I feel that way myself. Our second point today is the confidence of a trustworthy steward. Let's read the second half of verse 1 and verse 2. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. We just covered what servants of Christ means. Now let's focus on what it means to be a steward. A steward is someone employed as the manager of a typically large or important household. Sometimes the steward would be a free man. Sometimes he would be a slave of the household. But either way, the steward was entrusted with great responsibility. And that's exactly the dynamic at play in this verse. Paul is referring to stewards of the mysteries of God, which is pretty universally acknowledged by translators and commentators to mean stewards of the gospel. And to be entrusted with the gospel is indeed to be entrusted with great responsibility. So much so that Paul tells us that it is required of stewards to be trustworthy with that gospel. So what does that mean to be trustworthy with the gospel? Well, there are two connotations that I'd like to bring out from that statement, and I think both are important. First, we need to be trustworthy in terms of actually knowing what the gospel is. Beloved, this is the importance of good doctrine. There are all kinds of Christian cults who just butcher the gospel. They turn it into works righteousness or health, wealth, prosperity, heresy, or a negation of of Christ's, either his humanity or his deity, or, or a denial of the crucifixion or a denial of the resurrection. There are all these cults who do that. So we need to make sure we get it right. If there is truly salvation in no one else, and there is not, if there is truly no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, and there is no other name than Jesus, as it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, then as stewards of the gospel, as stewards of the only way to salvation, 
It becomes a moral and ethical imperative for us to be faithful and trustworthy in knowing that way. We need to know it and understand it fully. And later on in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul summarizes the precious gospel. I actually preached on this passage back on Resurrection Sunday. Verses 3 and 4 in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised in the third day according to the Scriptures. This is such a simple, helpful description of the gospel, but it also contains so much richness. I drew on these verses to come up with at least seven facts of the gospel. Jesus is God. He died for our sins as a substitutionary atonement. He died for our sins as a particular redemption. He was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is also fully man. He was resurrected, showing his victory over sin and death. And that resurrection, too, was foretold. These are part of the mysteries of God that Paul talks about. And the reason we emphasize it so much at our church, the reason we ask everyone who wants to become a member here to please explain the gospel in their written applications, the reason I ask everyone I do a membership interview with to please articulate the gospel to me in their own words is because it is precisely that important. And when I do these interviews, I'm happy to report that most of the time people just nail it. Sometimes people can give me a rote version of the gospel that they've memorized but maybe they're not quite as solid on the particulars or on having a casual conversation about what it all means. And sometimes, honestly, people are just a little shaky on it in general. Beloved, if you think you might be in one of those two latter categories, maybe you're a little shaky on it, maybe you're, you, know, you, you know something by rote memory, but it's harder to talk about it in a casual conversation, then I charge you, I exhort you, I implore you, We're coming up on the new year. Please take some time to read and study and understand the gospel. I'm not even going to give you the whole year. Take January, okay? (laughs) Please. Uh, it, It is so important. Take the month of January and make sure that you can share the gospel with an unbeliever and have a conversation about what the gospel means. Humble yourself if you have to. People won't look down on you. They'll they'll admire you for prioritizing this. Practice with your spouse, with your friends, with with people in your Bible study. Reach out to me if you want to. I would be glad and happy to do this with you. And the reason it's so important is because I mentioned there are two connotations about what it means to be trustworthy with the gospel as a steward. And again, the first that we just went over is in knowing and understanding it. But the second is to be faithful and trustworthy in proclaiming it. I mean, look, inviting people to church to hear the gospel is all well and good. That's a good thing. But evangelism is not just reserved for some priestly class. It is not reserved for pastors and elders. It's for all Christians. We see this throughout scripture. But 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 through 20 specifically declares every professing Christian to be an ambassador for Christ, charged with the ministry of reconciliation. And in order to do that, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and able to articulate how man can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ alone. This does not require you to be an expert in theology. 
The gospel is indeed deep enough for a lifetime, but it's also so simple that even a child can understand it and even share it. If you take the time to know and understand the gospel, your confidence as a Christian will inevitably increase because the pure milk of the gospel is what helps us to grow spiritually, even when we're newborn babes and infants in the faith, even when you've been in the faith for decades. I mean, I mean, think about it. It's just having the knowledge to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you is fundamentally reassuring and comforting and confidence building. I mean, haven't we all hoped and prayed at some point in our lives for someone to come up and ask us that perfect layup of an evangelism question? Han, what must I do to be saved? Am I the only one? Has anyone ever kind of prayed for that? It hasn't happened to me yet, but I do pray that it does happen, right? Well, if someone ever does ask that question, we need to be grounded enough in the truth of the gospel that we can give them a confident answer. This is what you must do to be saved. And not just fumble through some Christianese before saying, hey, why don't you come with me to church and my pastor can explain it to you. And that brings me to another way that we can have the confidence of a trustworthy steward. I think just about anyone who's done evangelism enough could tell you, the more that you evangelize, the more confident you become in evangelizing. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever gone, even once in your life, how many of you have ever gone street evangelizing or door-to-door evangelizing? Raise your hands. Okay, some of you, a good number of you. If you've never done this before, I'd like to highly encourage you please consider trying it sometime. We have groups through local outreach that go out just about every Sunday to knock on doors in our neighborhood. We have people in this very group who go out to places like Universal City Walk or the Americana or Metro Stops to share the good news. You might find it incredibly awkward and outside of your comfort zone. But you know what? God often uses situations like that to grow and stretch us. And even if you ultimately conclude, you you try it for a while, maybe this type of ministry is not going to be your own special area of emphasis, you will still prayerfully come away from it with a greater understanding of yourself, a greater understanding of the Lord, an increased appreciation for evangelists and missionaries, a deeper love of the lost, a growth in critically important skills for any believer like sharing the gospel and having a conversation with a stranger, And I honestly believe a greater confidence as both a trustworthy steward of the gospel and as a Christian. Let's move on. Just to recap, our first point was the confidence of a lowly slave. Our second point was the confidence of a trustworthy steward. Now our third point is the confidence of a clear conscience. Let's read verse 3 in the first half of verse 4. But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. As a reminder, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, which was beset by numerous problems, most of which were of the Corinthians' own making. And one major problem was factionalism and division that we've already talked about. And part of that involved accusations that people were making against Paul. So right on the heels of talking about the importance of being a trustworthy steward of the mysteries of the gospel, Paul says that to him... It would be a very small thing to be examined by the Corinthians or even by any human court. 
What does he mean by this? Well, I can tell you that for Christians, and in particular when we consider a Christian leader like the Apostle Paul, the reality is that all kinds of people are going to be watching. Believers will be watching, and unbelievers will be watching. And in our current day and age, it looks like we as Christians are going to be subject to increasing criticism from all directions. From some other professing Christians even, we might hear, You're such a misogynist. I can't believe you think that women cannot be elders. You must really hate women. Wow, you practice church discipline? That's so harsh and unloving. Wait, what do you mean that you have biblical sexual ethics that Christians have followed for 2,000 years? That's not progressive. How are you ever going to reach out to the millennials? You may have heard even some of those things yourself in the not-too-recent past. And from the world, it's even worse. As you may have heard, it has already gotten to the point of being examined in human courts, as this passage says, for some Christian bakers and business owners. And particularly for us here living in California, I imagine it will only become more difficult in the future. Right now, it's the ability for some Christians to earn a living in their own chosen profession. But in the not-too-distant future... We might be talking about actual imprisonment for so-called hate speech. It's already moving in that direction in other countries in the West. And even with the protections of the First Amendment here in the U.S., all it would take are a few court decisions the wrong way, and we really could be at that point, conceivably. But in spite of all that that we see today, Paul says back then, when certainly it was not exactly a pro-Christian legal environment, Paul still says that it's a very small thing to him. How can that be? Well, remember, going back to our first point, if we have the confidence of a lowly slave, we know that even with all of the hardship, we can endure and have joy even. And if this is what the Lord ordains, then so be it. But God also allows us the immense privilege of being used as his instruments. And so just because we do indeed trust in what God sovereignly ordains, that doesn't mean that we as Christians are just passive fatalists sitting on the train tracks refusing to move until we get run over. It would be like saying, well, God has already chosen every single believer since before the foundation of the world, so I I guess I don't have to go evangelize. No, no, no. Because we are commanded in Scripture to evangelize. And moreover, John 15 calls us all to bear fruit, even bear much fruit. And all through Scripture, we see how we're to be at the task of kingdom work. And part of that kingdom work is evangelism, as we've said. Part of it is providing for your family and other believers and being a good witness by showing the world how much we Christians love one another, which is right in keeping with Galatians 6 verse 10, which says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so we can simultaneously prepare for hardship and accept it joyfully if it comes, even while we also use our, for example, privileges of citizenship, just like Paul did as a Roman citizen, by the way, for the sake of being able to proclaim the gospel without hindrance, for example, to protect and care for the household of faith, for example, to whom Galatians 6.10 says that we owe a special and heightened duty. 
Now, as we continue in this section, Paul says something very interesting. He says, in fact, I do not even examine myself. This is fascinating because I think Paul's example here is so incredibly helpful to us in our highly self-absorbed society. When everything around us in the world is pushing us to glorify ourselves, to elevate our self-esteem, to have it our way, to follow our hearts, to do whatever we want to do, we have a tendency to drift toward narcissism. Everything becomes about us, how it affects us, what it means to us, and our gaze and our focus increasingly turn inward. So we navel gaze, and we start to hyperanalyze everything. And even though we might mean well, perhaps we're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm just being introspective for the purpose of spiritual growth. The danger is that sometimes we start to obsess over our own actions and motives, and really just about anything that has any spiritual significance at all. We, we can tend to overanalyze it sometimes. But note right here, Paul is not doing that. The Greek word for examine here is incredibly revealing. It conveys a sense of extremely intense and vigorous investigation from top to bottom. Another term for it would be examination by torture. That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? And yet, how many of us have exactly that tendency when it comes to our own hearts and motives sometimes? Now, I know you're all very well taught, and so I know what some of you might be thinking, but Han, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that we should be examining ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Well, yes, he does. But I would say there are two important distinctions here. First, the Greek word for examine in 2 Corinthians 13.5 is actually a completely different Greek word, even though it's the same English word. The usage there is simply to test or make proof of. That same term is also used in 1 Corinthians 11.28, to, to test or make use of, where believers are commanded to examine themselves before taking communion, which is a sobering and spiritually beneficial practice. In my own personal experience, it's been incredibly helpful. But those usages, those two usages, lack the intense examination by torture, meaning that we see in our passage today. The second distinction is that the challenge to examine and test that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 13.5 comes right on the heels of Paul describing people being led astray by false teachers and doubting Paul and the other true apostles, true apostles and teachers, describing people in unrepentant sin for impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality, describing people that are even within the church discipline process. So in dire contexts like those, it is especially appropriate to examine yourselves, even though we could certainly see this as an open call and command to all Christians as well. But coming back to today's verse, Paul is saying that even in the midst of factions and accusations, he doesn't generally subject himself to an examination by torture. And so perhaps you might want to consider keeping that in mind if you're someone who's prone to agonizing over whether you possibly could have been a little bit more kind or generous or diligent at various points in your life. Look, it's very simple. If your biblically informed conscience convicts you, then repent. Go make it right and do better the next time. If you don't have a biblically informed conscience, then go learn and read the word more so that you can have a biblically informed conscience. 
If you're in unrepentant sin or, or have some secret or hidden sin, or if you're starting to follow after false teachers like we saw in 2 Corinthians, then you definitely need to repent. But otherwise, speaking more generally, maybe, just maybe, it might be better to get over yourself and get to work for the kingdom. Because in all likelihood, spending a ton of time navel-gazing isn't going to honor the Lord. And more than that, it isn't even going to be helpful to you most of the time. What invariably will help anyone who is in Christ, far more than looking inward and, and focusing on yourself, is to look upward at Jesus Christ. To focus on our precious Savior rather than ourselves. Who, our, our Savior who is the source of ultimate hope and the only reason that we might be able to accomplish anything on this earth that might potentially honor God. And on that note, I have to add one last thing on the topic of assurance of salvation. I know some of you struggle with assurance, with whether or not you're really saved. And I have so much love and care and compassion for you. I I do. And I'm here for you. If you ever want to talk about it, but I would urge you to follow Paul as he follows Christ here and try not to torture yourself with self-examination. The question is not, do you love God enough? Because none of us do. The question is not, do you trust God enough? Because none of us do. The question is, do you love Jesus at all? Do you trust in his promises to you in the word of God? If so, then rest in that. Because it's the objective work of Jesus Christ on the cross that has bought our salvation, that has accomplished our righteousness. And that work has already been done by the only person who ever could have done it. And that ain't us, y'all. Of course you are not sanctified enough because you are still trapped in this accursed, sinful flesh. But you know what? Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. It doesn't say a righteous man never falls. When Jesus said, it is finished, you can believe that. You can trust in that. And if you have even a tiny mustard seed of faith, though your flesh and your heart may fail, and they will, God will still be the strength of your heart and your portion forever. And if you can grasp this truth, if you can really grab hold of it, then I earnestly pray that confidence and assurance will follow. Just listen to John drive, this, drive home this concept in 1 John 3, verses 19 through 21. Just listen. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart. And knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. There's another reason Paul says that all of this examination is a very small thing. And that's because as this section continues, he writes, For I am conscious of nothing against myself. Some other translations use the term, my conscience is clear. And indeed, Paul talks numerous times elsewhere in scripture about his clear conscience. 
like in Romans 9.1 or 2 Corinthians 1.12 or 1 Timothy 1.19 or 2 Timothy 1.3. Peter also talks about a clear conscience in 1 Peter 3.16, while Luke mentions it in Acts 23 verse 1 and 24 verse 16. So what Paul is saying is that he searched his own conscience which has been informed by the word of God. It's very important. And the Corinthians and the outside world really don't have anything on him. The accusations of factionalism or divisiveness couldn't stick because Paul knew that was not his motive or intention. He wasn't trying to rally people to his own personality or cause. He was simply taking a stand on the word of God to rally people to Jesus's cause. Similarly, human courts might declare Paul to be, say, inciting rebellion. But Paul wasn't doing that either. In that case, it was the Jews who were falsely accusing him. Now, a human court might rightly accuse Paul of refusing to worship the emperor. But even if that might have violated the law of Rome at the time, Acts chapter 5, verse 29 is crystal clear that we must obey God rather than men. And worshiping anyone other than our God, our true God, would be a horrific sin. So a court could indeed convict Paul for not worshiping the emperor, but that would be a rich privilege to be suffering for righteousness sake. I think you can see how having a clear conscience in matters like these would give you confidence. And just to share a personal word, ever since becoming an elder a bit over five years ago, I've occasionally said some things and even made some decisions that haven't exactly thrilled everyone. A few of those people accused me of having bad motives or acting wrongly. One person even made some completely outlandish accusations that he couldn't possibly have had any basis for. But at the end of the day, all I could tell them was, look, I I am conscious of nothing against myself. I've searched my heart deeply, and and I honestly don't believe I had those bad motives. And I really didn't do these things you're accusing me of. My conscience is clear on these matters. And I can still look you in the eyes and tell you that I love you. Despite the fact that you disagree with me. Despite the fact that you might even be really mad at me. Despite the fact that in some cases I might really be grieving because of your unrepentant, clear sin. And if you're still not satisfied with any of that, well, I'm a man under authority authority myself. And so you're welcome to take anything you want up with the chairman of our elder board. And I know that he will tell me if I got something wrong. You know, that last concept is important because Paul talks about this next. He says, yet I am not by this acquitted. Just because a Christian's conscience might be clear, that doesn't mean that he's necessarily right or righteous. He might be missing important facts. His Jeremiah 17, 9 heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick so he might not be discerning his own motives correctly. His conscience might not be properly informed by the word of God, or he might be misapplying the word of God. He might have just totally blown it in some other way completely. These are realities of our human life. And it's so important to remember, both as a guard against the prideful poison of self-righteousness, and it is a poison, I assure you, but also as a reminder to remain humble and easy to entreat, as it says in some translations of James 3, 17. 
Ultimately, we're all going to be limited by our own human fallibility and lack of perfect information and judgment. Sometimes the Lord will reveal important information to us later that changes our view on something. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will convict us on something, maybe even years later, and we'll realize like a thunderbolt, wow, maybe my motive wasn't so pure after all. And sometimes vindication honestly might have to wait until glory. That leads us to our fourth and final point, the confidence of a final judgment. Let's read the last half of verse 4 and verse 5. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul just finished talking about the importance of maintaining a clear conscience and how he's not necessarily going to agonize over what other people are thinking or judging about him. The fourth point from our passage essentially applies the golden rule from Luke 6.31 to these same concepts. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Think about it. How many times have you wished and prayed that other people would view you based on your actual motives rather than what they perceive your motives to be? Wow, I can't believe you would think that of me. You want others to give you the benefit of the doubt, and I get that. But then we also need to give others that same benefit of the doubt. We know this from the golden rule, but we also know it from John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. It's a command. We're to love other believers. Believers are commanded to love each other. And part of the definition of love from 1 Corinthians 13, 7 is that it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, believes all things, hopes all things. What that means is to believe the best of others. It's crystal clear in scripture. So why is it so hard for us to do so often? The simple answer is that it's often our pride. We think we know the hearts of others better than they do sometimes even to the point of rejecting another person's plain declaration sometimes of his own motives. Instead, we might choose to assume that they're lying or that they're self-deceived. And sure, technically it's possible that they might be, but most of the time, even as I talk about thinking that we know others' hearts better than they do, doesn't that sound kind of, well, arrogant? We might think we're so good at detecting lies, and maybe we are, with our own young children perhaps, But for other adults, the base accuracy for people detecting lies in other adults, even people who think they're really good at it, is a flat 50%. And maybe you could train rigorously and get that up 5, 10, 15, 20% higher. But really, it's incredibly difficult to determine accurately whether someone else is lying or not. With such a high failure rate, are you really willing to trash a friendship on the basis of your gut? But maybe it's not pride. Sometimes this tendency might spring from a desire to protect ourselves from hurt or heartache or vulnerability. But the word calls us to keep fervent in our love for one another in 1 Peter 4.8. And John 15.13 tells us that the greatest love is sacrificial, a love that lays down even our own lives for our friends. And sometimes this tendency might even be based on a sad pattern of very real disappointment. But the word calls us to forgive 70 times, seven times in Matthew 18, 22. 
So regardless of what the reason is, our passage gives us an additional reason for confidence in believing the best of others' motives, and that's because we know there will be a final judgment before an all-knowing and perfect God. We see it right there. The one who examines Paul and everyone is the Lord. And because the Lord will have his final judgment, we are set free from having to pass judgment right now. In fact, we're commanded not to pass judgment on things hidden in the darkness or on the motives of men's hearts. This freedom liberates us from any felt need that we might have to police the motives of others. I mentioned at the start that this verse has come up for me so often in counseling and teaching and writing. And the reason is that in human interactions, we judge other people's motives all the time. I've talked and written about the concept of microaggressions before. Oh, you just called me an oriental. You must be a racist. You just complimented me on my English. I can't believe you did that. You must be a super racist. You didn't vote for Hillary? You've got to be the worst racist in the history of all racism. (laughs) You, you, You know what I'm talking about. We're seeing it more and more all around us these days. But why jump to the worst assumptions like that? Maybe the brother doesn't listen to a lot of media, and so he missed the memo that apparently it's Asian and not Oriental these days. Maybe I just used some really sophisticated vocabulary or something. Maybe I utterly hate racism, and I do, but I just couldn't get comfortable in my conscience with voting for someone who thinks murdering the unborn should be a constitutional right. For Christians, the first question should never be, did he offend you? But rather, did he intend to offend you? Most of the time, the answer is going to be no, of course not. And if you're not sure, you can always ask. I don't know if you're aware of this, but people don't really use the term oriental anymore. I'm not offended, but I do know some people who actually could be offended by that potentially. What's the answer going to be? From a Christian, I'm betting it's, I never knew that. Thank you so much for telling me. And if instead he chooses to say, yeah, I know, but I hate political correctness and I love owning the libs and I don't, and I don't really care what you think. Well, in that case, then you have what I'd like to call a shepherding opportunity. Let me give you another example. You're walking down Grace Walk and you spot an acquaintance and you see him shoot you a dirty look. What was that? Did I offend him somehow? Is someone gossiping about me? It must be our mutual friend. We just had an argument and the two of them are so close. That is so inappropriate for them to be gossiping. (laughs) Who do I confront first? But wait, what what if they deny it? Okay, well, then I guess I'm to step two of church discipline. I need to figure out who I'm going to bring with me as a witness. You know, you you laugh, and maybe that's an exaggeration, but I promise you, if it is an exaggeration, it's not a large exaggeration. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says we're to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to our own business and work with our hands, which is pretty much the precise opposite of surrounding yourself with drama all the time. Look at our whole passage this morning. That dirty look, if it was even that, is a very small thing, especially to a lowly slave, to a trustworthy steward with a clear conscience who doesn't have to go on passing judgment but can wait patiently for the Lord's final judgment. And the reality is it probably wasn't a dirty look at all. Maybe he just realized he forgot something at home. 
Maybe he was just having a moment of indigestion. <laughs> if you just cannot bear not knowing, then ask. And, and if you're embarrassed because it just seems too awkward or too small of a thing to bother ask, asking, then that might just be a sign that you should just forget about it instead. Remember, Proverbs 19.11 says that a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. And that is an actual, real transgression against you, by the way, and not just a funny look. You know, I just, um, you know, I think about these matters and just, there's so much jumping to conclusions based on incomplete information, based on assumption. And the message of this end of the verse, end of the passage is, don't do that. You you can believe the best instead. And the joy of that is to look at the very end of our passage. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Part of the confidence that comes along with knowing that there's a final judgment from the Lord is that we know that he will judge perfectly. Remember in chapter 3, Paul talks about heavenly rewards, gold and silver and precious stones. And that's undoubtedly on his mind in this passage as well when he talks about being examined by the Lord and each man's praise coming to him from God. And that's the joy because that's when every good thing that you've done in secret out of love for Christ will be rewarded. That's when every injustice done to you will be repaid because Romans 12, 19 says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That final judgment is when we yearn for the well-done, good and faithful servant. And when we remember it's not all about results, that our hidden motives of the heart do matter. I have to imagine that the prophet Jeremiah, who preached faithfully to deaf ears, has received far more heavenly rewards than the prophet Jonah, who was dragged kicking and screaming to Nineveh via express fish to preach sullenly and reluctantly only to see the whole city repent. And so for you, dear saint, maybe late at night when you're struggling with a bitter memory or a broken relationship or someone who has assumed the worst of you or even an injustice done to you for no rational reason you can think of, you can still rest peacefully by remembering that a perfect final judgment is coming. And just like you can take confidence from that, you can also take confidence from the rest of this passage by remembering that you are but a lowly slave, that you can actually be a trustworthy steward of the gospel, and that one of the most serene places a Christian can ever be is when that Christian has searched his or her heart and has a clear conscience. Because ultimately, our conscience springs not from ourselves, but from the fact that we have a perfect master who is sovereignly ordaining everything and who has given us his perfect word. And most importantly, who has given us the gift of his perfect son who gave his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful to you for the word of God. We're thankful to you for our precious Savior, whose birth we celebrate during this season. Father, I pray that this message has been 
as I've been praying, in accordance with your word and its principles, and that it will be helpful to the people of God, and that they will apply the word of God to their lives. Lord, we thank you for this rich privilege of being here together in fellowship. We thank you for the privilege of this church. And Lord, we are so grateful to you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.